Some months ago, I discovered a podcast that gripped me from its very first episode. It seemed to reach deep into my psyche, touching on all of the things that I care about most. That podcast is Banished from Substack's Booksmart Studios, and it is a deeply thoughtful and nuanced look at our obsession with cancel culture. Its host is a remarkable academic who is fiercely committed to open inquiry. There is something about human curiosity that cannot be hemmed in. And it will find a way to persist, to ask, to question. Amna Khalid is a historian and a professor at Carleton College. She is a prolific writer of opinion pieces, often with her colleague Jeff Snyder, on the big issues of our time, including academic freedom, free speech, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, and the controversy over critical race theory in the classroom. Today, she joins me to talk about how her early years in Pakistan fueled her hunger for free expression, why she speaks out about intellectual conformity on campus, and where she gets her hope from. The brilliant Amna Khalid is my guest. That's today on Lean Out. Amna, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you. It's great to be here, Tara. So nice to have you here. I have been wanting to speak with you. I've been following your work, your essays, your podcast. One of the main goals of my own writing is to complicate the dominant narratives. And I, I look to your work as just such an excellent example of this. Well, thank you. I'm flattered. <laughs> I'm not sure I really deserve that praise, but I'll take it. Why not? <laughs> you know, I'm thinking even the very first episode of your podcast, the subject of, quote, problematic public art, in this case, Victor Arnatoff's murals in San Francisco, you held this rich, incredibly nuanced conversation about it. And you say in the teaser to your podcast back from last summer, what you want in life most is to have these conversations. I relate to that so much. Do you think these conversations have been harder to find in recent years, given the state of our culture, or somewhat easier given the rise of independent media? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think it's tough to come up with an answer that addresses everything at the outset. I'd say it's definitely much harder. And I found it hard in the US in particular, because things over here are polarized in a way that I haven't experienced before elsewhere. I'm an immigrant to the US now an American citizen, but I've been here for about 11 years. And I've really never lived in a country where the way you mow your lawn is indicative of your political loyalties. It's really to that level of which hand do you hold your fork in kind of thing. And I've been amazed at how quick people are to judge. And given how quick people are to judge and how keen they are to quickly figure you out and slot you into a box does make it much harder to have these conversations with some nuance, with complexity. Having said that, I have to say that there are ways in which independent media has opened up interesting opportunities. I mean, many of the conversations that I've been having over the last year, last two years, would not have been possible without access to people, much of which was actually the silver lining, if you will, of COVID is that it has facilitated mm -hmm. being able to talk across differences and barriers in ways that are not necessarily readily visible, but it does make access a lot more possible. So 
In some ways, no. I think it's much harder to have these conversations because of the political climate of the country. But in other ways, yes, I think, especially because of the political climate of the country and these places where you can have independent conversations, has allowed people like you and other independent-minded people to come together in interesting ways and create places for these discussions. Mm. I think it is an exciting time for that piece of it. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you a little bit today to start about your background about Pakistan, about what that experience was like, how that shaped how you look at the current moment. So let me begin by saying, I don't want to peddle a narrative of where I come from this hyper-marginalized community and am now over here. That's not the case at all. You know, I come from a place of privilege in Pakistan. I'm not unaware of it. And privilege for me is not the bad word that it's come to mean these days. So I don't want to fall into, you know, I'm not looking to cash in on the victimhood narrative. That's Mm. absolutely no interest to me. And it it would be false for me to be doing that because Mm. I have not been a victim in any way. Having said that, I mean, growing up under authoritarian regimes has posed its set of challenges. And more than anything else, I think it's allowed me to develop a sensibility where I appreciate the value for open thinking, for free thinking, which was certainly something that was constrained. So even someone like me who comes from extreme privilege in the Pakistani context felt constrained. And I think that says something about what these kinds of authoritarian societies do, they narrow the scope for thinking even amongst the privileged. And privilege is not a ticket out of that kind of trap of what you're meant to think. So growing up, I grew up in Pakistan under a whole series of military dictatorships, and I often kind of laugh about it, but it's a really sorry situation to think that the only two times I've voted in my life have been in countries that are not of my birth. So I voted in Britain when I was there as a graduate student, and I had the right to vote. And then the next was in the previous elections here in the US. I've never had the opportunity to cast a vote in my own country, because every time when I came of age, every time it was time for elections, a coup would happen just before, and we didn't have elections. So I'm just trying to reflect back on it and think about it. And it's a strange marriage of political authoritarianism, military authoritarianism, and religious authoritarianism. And it's a very kind of, I don't know how to put it any other way, for the lack of a better word, a schizophrenic manifestation of authoritarianism. You, If you go to Pakistan, you'll go to places which feel incredibly westernized, and you'd wonder what the problem is. And then you'll go to other places where it's extremely repressive. But the general atmosphere when it comes to freedom of thought is pretty strictly constrained. And that, for me, is something that I think even before I knew it, I was hungering to have a place where I could think freely. And that has informed my move away from home, first to Britain and now to the US. And I think one of the reasons that I got involved in the kinds of conversations that you and I are having today is precisely because I started feeling a disillusionment about the nature of public discourse in the US and particularly on academic campuses, which Mm -hmm. to me are sacred spaces that should be devoted to open inquiry. And seeing that space being narrowed has been one of the reasons that I've started doing this kind of work. Mm -hmm. So interesting. And and before we move on to campuses, because I do want to speak about that, I wanted to ask you, one of my favorite episodes of your podcast is the interview with the Pakistani artist Salima Hajmi. 
Yes. And just such an incredibly rich conversation with so much heart. And one of the things that she talked about looking at the West is this, this sort of horror of the mob rule that's coming up and the calls for ambiguity and also yeah. humor. Talk to me a little bit about what it was like for you going back after having been away for many years and having a conversation like that. Yeah, it's interesting. So I went back after five years and I was really looking forward to it. And I was thinking, who can I get to speak to what's happening in Pakistan today, but who also has the kind of institutional memory that can reflect on where Pakistan was back in the 70s and 80s. And there's no one better than Salima Hashmi for that, precisely because of the range of her work, both in terms of human rights work, art activism, you name it, and she's done it. And for me, that interview was especially interesting because I think one of my problems, if I can be open, is that I'm impatient. My friends will tell you that I lose patience quickly because once I see a point or I see an argument, I struggle to understand why I'm not being able to come across to someone else. Why does someone else not see what I'm trying to say? And it was very instructive for me to listen to her. And, and she said, you know, she's been in the business of education all her life. And she said, pontificating gets you nowhere. <laughs> and, you know, putting forward your arguments gets you nowhere. And the way to actually change people's hearts and minds is more indirectly. She, she talked about humor. I must confess, I enjoy good humor. I partake in it in my personal life. But in terms of when I'm making intellectual arguments, I'm not quite there yet. And I'm still struggling to find the space to be humorous about those things. But it did make me stop and think about what are the different ways in which we communicate? And I think as I don't consider myself a public intellectual, but I think I'm following in similar footsteps in terms of the strategies involved. And I look at public intellectuals and I think, this is great. People are making these arguments. But at a time when people are so polarized and people have stopped listening, how do we find another avenue to get to them? And that's really when I started thinking about the voice that I write in. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to that one particular episode where I spoke about my own experiences and disillusionment with the West. It was a letter that I wrote to a loved one who now lives in Britain, reflecting on our journeys of moving away from home in search of that kind of freedom and, and finding ourselves not in the same trap, you know, far be it from me to compare American society to military regimes in Pakistan, but there is a certain dogma that is in the air mm. that feels familiar. And I found it interesting to do that particular voice and use that voice because that clearly reached far more people than I had been able to reach mm -hmm. with my argumentative pieces and my op-eds. So it did open up for me, you know, we are living in times when lived experience is the currency of our times, much mm. to my irritation, though I do value lived experience. But what I find frustrating, especially in classes, like when I'm teaching my students, is like lived experience becomes the end of a conversation, whereas I really think it should be the beginning of a conversation where we then get into looking at how do we make that lived experience mean something more than just one individual's lived experience? Sorry, I'm rambling now. <laughs> no, but, and I, I agree with you completely. I mean, I, part of the reason that I got into journalism is I want to hear people's lived experience. I want to hear those stories. I want to hear the richness and the differences and the the humanity of all of it. But like you, I don't want it to be the end of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, I think there is a tendency to do this kind of navel gazing, right? And that's why I also dithered a lot before I actually made that particular episode mm -hmm. where I read out that letter aloud. Because I was like, I don't want this to come across as navel gazing. And then after 
sitting on it for months, I eventually decided to do it. And I'm all for lived experience and looking at how it speaks to our moment, as long as you can place it in a bigger conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so move away from the navel gazing and look at the bigger issues that are shaping your lived experience and how your lived experience is in conversation with those bigger issues. So for that reason, you know, I don't want to dismiss lived experience, but I think the dominant way of engaging with it right now is a way that is silencing conversation and silencing dissent, which is the opposite of how I think it should be used. Mm -hmm. In turning to campuses, I mean, you and Jeff Snyder, your collaboration began around 2016. Is that right? Correct. Yes. So describe for me a little bit of what you were seeing and feeling and experiencing in, in that moment. And let me begin by saying I was very naive and likely still am on many fronts, but particularly with respect to American higher education, which sounds kind of silly coming from a professor. But given my trajectory, given that I didn't go to grad school in the U.S., I went to grad school in England. There was a lot that I was learning about the American educational higher ed uh, landscape. And it was in 2016 when our campus was considering instituting a bias response team. And I quite by chance went to what they call a town hall to have a conversation about it. And I was horrified by what the proposal was. And I was horrified that this was being done in the name of progressive values. So that if someone feels like they have been hurt because of someone's biased speech or action, then that person can be held accountable. And what was fascinating, the point that was really, I'd say, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back for me was that it didn't matter what the intention of the individual was, who had said or behaved in a particular way. All that mattered was impact. And that sounded so odd to me. It just, it reminded me a lot of the kinds of conversations that I'd had in Pakistan where people really reject nuance, reject complexity when we're having these kinds of discussions about complex issues because of dogma, because of religious dogma. And I was troubled by that. And that's when Jeff Snyder and I decided to write an article. And it's what's also interesting, and here is where my naivete is right on display for everyone, is that both Jeff and I were junior faculty at that point. We did not have tenure. And when we wrote that piece, it got a lot of attention nationally. And my inbox started getting flooded by people saying, you're so brave to do this, especially as junior faculty. And I was like, should I not have spoken up? Like, it was completely something that I didn't even consider, which is what could be the implications of speaking out like this when you're untenured? But it also struck me as incredibly sad. I thought, you know, here I have this journey that I've made to the U.S. to have freedom of thought. And even here, people have to constrain themselves and worry about their career consequences. And that just isn't what I'm in the game for. So that was the beginning. And when we started looking into that, that was my eye-opening moment to recognize how much of this kind of stuff was going on across campuses in the U.S. And it was chilling to me because I could see the impact that was going to have and was having on the ability of people to express ideas on campus. And if there's one place you should be able to express your ideas in good faith is on campus, no matter how troubling the idea may be, because this is the space where we hash things out. So that's how I got started and and started looking into this. And Again, naively thought, oh, bias response teams are just just this one thing that are happening. But as we did the research for that piece, I started getting involved in, just started paying attention to what else is happening in American higher ed. 
And it started worrying me. And I realized it was time to take part in a wider conversation. And so many of us academics, you know, we talk to each other. We have this hyper-jargonized way of speaking to each other. Nobody else really understands what we're saying. And then more recently, I've seen things like academic terms and terminology make it into public discourse in a most perverted kind of fashion. For instance, the use of the term critical race theory. And it occurred to me that it's time that academics started speaking to a broader public in a way that was more nuanced. And we're not just bandying about these terms, but really breaking them down. And it's not that inaccessible, the stuff we do, but it does require patience, which I lack in other domains, but have plenty of (laughs) when it comes to exploring ideas. And it is possible for people to engage in that conversation. And I think at this particular moment, it's absolutely necessary. I wondered what it has been like for you if there has been sort of pressures on you, because I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things going on here. One, this list of things that are off limits, these topics that we're not meant to discuss because they are too explosive has been growing and growing and growing. But then you also have like Leighton Woodhouse has a great piece this week talking about in academia, there's pressures not to speak to a mainstream audience. There's this idea that your work is is more serious if it's only for the small group of people that are reading it. How have you navigated those kind of dual pressures? Yeah, that is a very real pressure. So I first want to recognize that a lot of academics have pressures on them to produce very specialized knowledge. And one of the ways I've been fortunate is that I'm at a liberal arts institution, and the pressures on us are slightly different from those at research universities in that we're not required to produce at this rapid pace this academic research and We are still required to produce it, don't get me wrong, but the rate is different. And so that allows us a little more room to play around. Having said that, the pressures on us are very heavy in terms of teaching. We teach a lot. We spend a lot of time with our students. And perhaps that's one of the reasons. I mean, I think my fundamental commitment is to my students. It's not the institution, it's not the faculty, but it is the students. And for that reason, I realize that much of what I'm trying to do is make accessible complex things to students who are undergraduates who are just coming on board. And this is not that different from speaking to a public audience. So in some ways, I realized that that was a strength that I had that I could harness and hone. In terms of navigating those pressures on campus and at my own institution, I'll say it helps to have tenure. And much of the work I have done, even though I was speaking out before tenure, much of the work that I've produced in this domain has been post-tenure because, yes, I had to earn my stripes. I had to do the work that was required to earn tenure at Carlton. But Carlton is, in this regard, very supportive of uh, we have a lot of autonomy as academics over here to pursue what interests us. I'm trained as a South Asian historian and a historian of medicine, and one would think none of that has anything to do with the conversations that I'm partaking in now. And I would argue it has everything to do with them because academic freedom and freedom of thought are absolutely essential to explore any topic. But back to how I've navigated those, having tenure has been a huge, huge boon in that regard. And it's also led me to see that I have great frustration with my colleagues. I'm not talking about just colleagues at Carleton, but more broadly in higher education, my colleagues who have tenure and who have not spoken out where they should have, where academic freedom is being eroded. And I do, I do firmly hold Professors with tenure responsible for a lot of the negative changes that we see happening at academic institutions. I think tenure comes with 
you know, it's a great privilege. I greatly value it. I think there is a reason why this is the only profession that comes with a lifetime guarantee of a job. And it comes with a particular responsibility for speaking up. So I'm sorry to say that I think a lot of academics have forgotten that responsibility piece and are quietly doing great work in their own areas, but not speaking up in ways that they should be to protect the space for people to think freely and speak freely. Yeah, I think the same about journalists. I think it's job number one right now to defend freedom of expression, free speech, open inquiry. What do you see when you look at the culture as a whole right now, both on campus but off campus? What do you see as as the biggest threats right now to free speech, open inquiry, free debate? I feel the line between the sector of education and the public more broadly actually has become fuzzier recently, which is not a bad thing. But for that reason, I think many of the threats that we see to free expression in public discourse are the same threats that we see to academic freedom in open inquiry. I say the biggest threat right now is coming from legislation, which is trying to regulate what people can teach in schools and in universities. Last year, many of these what are broadly known as anti-CRT bills, and I think Pan America has the best term for them, educational gag orders, they were mainly targeting K through 12 education. And this year, we're beginning to see a shift in that they are going for higher ed and public universities. And it's fascinating to me how this is even possible, given that they fundamentally butt up against the First Amendment. So it's going to be a long, drawn out legal battle. And I think that's part of the intention of those who are crafting these bills. I think a lot of Fear is engendered in this particular tactic, and, and, and that is the aim. So to control what people can and can't talk about, just, just today, actually, on Twitter, I was reading there was some piece about how so many teachers were unable to speak in school, this is K through 12, about the Buffalo shooting in class because they worried that it would fall into the divisive concepts category, and therefore they'll be sanctioned for talking about it. So that, I would argue, is the biggest threat. I see that coming. Having said that, I think it's not happening in a vacuum. I think there are threats both on the extreme right and the extreme left, and they feed off each other. And the tragedy is that in feeding off each other, they become increasingly more extreme. So on the extreme left, I would say there is this new dogma of what, for the lack of a better term, is... This is broad, and I don't mean to lump them all together, but for shorthand, uh, like diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives on college campuses and beyond. And also what my colleague Jeff Snyder and I refer to as Anti-Racism Inc., which is this approach towards anti-racism based on Ibrahim Kendi's work and Robin D'Angelo's work, which is extremely reductive, I think counterproductive, and more divisive than anything else. So I think those, if you were to ask me, I would say those are the two threats, biggest threats. And it's not a coincidence that they're from the extremes because they actually feed off each other. And in so many ways, those on these extremes are more similar to each other than they think they are. It's such an interesting point. And I think you had a great podcast on this. I'm, the name of the podcast guest is, is failing me at this moment. But one of the podcasts that you did, the speaker was saying, listen, it's important to teach CRT. If you don't agree with it, let's pick it apart in the classroom. Let's talk Absolutely. about why. Absolutely. I mean, the problem is that we seem to think, not we as in broadly the discourses, that people are being taught things as the truth 
in school or at college. And to my mind, if that is the framework, then you will be anxious about anything that gets taught. However, if we approach it differently and say, well, this is one framework, some frameworks for understanding social change or inequality, whatever the thing you're trying to understand, some of them are stronger than others. Some of them commend themselves more. And some of them are weaker. But that doesn't mean that we don't teach them. We don't teach them as being true. We teach them precisely so that our students can see what is wrong with them. And to me, it's not my job to tell a student which one is the right one at the higher ed level I'm talking it's for them to make up their own minds. My job is to give them the tools to be able to analyze these different frameworks. So when we talk about CRT, first, I think what is called labeled CRT, and there's been so much written about this, so I won't go on and on, isn't CRT, it's CRT light. So it's kind of ideas inspired by what they think is critical race theory. And I'm not saying those are great ideas. I'm not saying they're bad ideas. I'm saying they're ideas. They're a framework or one way of looking at the world, a lens, if you will. A lens that I personally find problematic, but that doesn't make me not want to have it in my class. In fact, it makes me precisely for that reason, have it in my class so that I can show my students, well, here it is. What do you think the shortcomings are? And put it in conversation with other frameworks so that students can begin to think for themselves. That's what we should be doing. And there's one more thing I want to say, mm -hmm. which is often the retort is, well, at K through 12, you know, children are not able to deal with complexity. This is not the place for it. I contest that. I have two children who are in elementary school, and I think we have a very paternalistic approach with some reason, uh, you know, towards our children, which is that they can't handle complexity. I think that's completely wrong. I'm not saying that they can sit and read complicated legal theories, but I do think that children have the capacity, in fact, they have more capacity than we do to hold complexity and to be in that space of ambiguity because they haven't yet been hardened in particular silos. So I think there are ways to discuss ideas as one among many and tell our children that as we're teaching them. And they, they can deal with that. So this idea that somehow what we teach them in school is going to infect them in only one particular way is like a the metaphor that comes to mind is it's based on this idea of disease. It's like it's going to infect them. And there's mm. only one way that everyone's going to respond to them, which is not true. People respond to stimuli in many, many different ways. So the mm -hmm. same book that might have made someone into a dogmatic thinker may have been a reason for me to become a critical thinker because I disagreed with it. We need to recognize that our children are autonomous and that we have a role, of course, to shape their thinking, but we don't control every reaction that they have towards mm -hmm. a particular stimulus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the time that we're in is, is just so full of these sort of anxieties and panics, as you say, on the left and the right, and the, the paternalism on both sides is worrying. And I, I love it when I come across thinkers that look at it on both sides of the spectrum, because I think it's so important that we call it out wherever it appears. Yeah, and those are the people who have the least friends, let me just add. <laughs> I find myself belonging to no tribe and uh, everyone being skeptical when they come close to me. They're like, do we touch her? Do we not touch her? <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> but, you know, I, I do think that it requires a certain amount of backbone to say some of the things that need to be said. And there is a social cost. I think that's part of the reason I was talking about how tenured faculty don't speak out as much. They're not worried about the economic costs. They've got secure jobs. They're worried about the social costs. And those are real. But 
They're just part of the story. And I feel like pandering to increasingly new demands for X, Y, and Z doesn't help eliminate them. It doesn't satisfy people. We are in the business of education, and that's what we should focus on, not in the business of pandering. And this kind of customer is always right model that has come to dominate higher education is worrying to me. It's been going on for a long time. There's not a new trend, but we're certainly seeing a new culmination of it in a new fashion right now. Mm, indeed. And I, I wonder, I mean, where this all goes from here. I, it's something I ask a lot. I think about a lot. I'm so curious how other people think about this. I want to touch just to close on Alice Walker, who you interviewed for your podcast. Yes. And two things really stood out to me. One, she talked about cancellation as an economic imperative that seeks to strip agency from people yes. in the culture. Such an interesting point. She also believes that this moment that we are in is a passing one, one we may need to go through, one we must endure, and that our job as thinkers is to study it and learn from it. That is such a hopeful take. To what extent do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I, I think it is an incredibly hopeful take and one that I definitely needed to hear at that point in time. And it's often one that I, I think go back to in my mind. I do get despondent at times and the disillusionment piece in my life tends to weigh heavier than the hopeful note. But I really liked what she said about putting it in a longer frame, I think. That's the other thing. We tend to think that the moment we're in is exceptional and the most important. Whereas this is where being a historian is also helpful. I'm like, okay, this is just part of a longer process. It's going to play out and we'll see where it goes. I do believe that her point about how we need to be paying attention and to study it is vital. That is part of what we're doing. And I think that's part of why I like having these conversations is to try and observe, to understand, to engage. I think eventually where I derive my hope from is when I'm interacting with my children and I can see that they are able to partake in these discussions in a way that is open-minded. And that gives me hope. I'm actually sometimes quite surprised by what my six-year-old and nine-year-old say to me about topics pertaining to free speech and free expression. And it makes me think there is something about human curiosity that cannot be hemmed in. And it will find a way to persist, to ask, to question. And I think those are moments when I'm feeling particularly despondent. I like thinking back to my conversation with Alice Walker. I like thinking back to my conversations with my children, the conversation with Salima Hashmi in particular. I think some of these discussions were very important for me personally, precisely because I was beginning to lose hope. I remember talking to Nadine Strawson, more recently, she came to our campus and we had a fantastic conversation. And I asked her that question. I said, do you ever get disillusioned or despondent? And it was inspiring for me to see her say never. And she said, no, I believe in the work that we do. And I believe that this is vital and important and people will come through it. So those are some of the places that I go to in my mind to look for inspiration, to look for hope. And I think things will shift. I think there are more of us who are speaking out. And by more of us, I don't mean people who think the same way. It's exactly the people who don't think the same way, but who are willing to engage in conversation. That gives me some hope. Well, that is a lovely place to leave it. I often look to your work for hope. So it is wonderful to get to speak with you. Thank you, Tara. I've been so enjoying your work, as I said before we started our podcast recording. And thank you so much for having me on. This was wonderful.
is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 